Price appreciation on Bitcoin is not coming from an ETF. The price appreciation that's going to make Bitcoin scream over a million dollars a coin is going to be when the the fixed income market comes to the realization that the 5% inflation is not going away. Hello there from Austin in the great state of Texas. And a big thanks to Parker Lewis for hosting me last night for beers and barbecue. How are you all doing? Bitcoin's looking strong right now. We could be in for a very exciting end to the year. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got my first WBD Live with Marty Bent and Preston Pish, which was recorded last week in Nashville. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors, and today we're going to kick off with Sportsbet.io, which is the very best place for online gaming because they are badasses. They accept Bitcoin, and if you're into gaming... They cover everything. They've got football, they've got motorsports, they've got esports. They even cover all the American sports, the sports I like to see when I'm out here. And I'm hopefully going to be going to see a Raiders game soon. And I've got the boxing this weekend. We've got Fury fighting Wilder, their third fight. Should be exciting stuff. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, we have is Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as regular listeners know, UX is super important to me. I'm always ragging on about it. So when Exodus reached out to me and I played with the app, I knew that was something I could recommend to you, my friends, and my family. Exodus Desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address known that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. Now, if you want to check it out yourself, please head over to exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Also, let's talk about Casa, which is the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. And with Bitcoin back over $54,000, I know some of you out there listening are making some good gains. But have you got your security in place? You see, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for your Bitcoin to be lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you take custody of your Bitcoin. But you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets. And you get to distribute these wallets into different locations. And that is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more, you can reach out to me. You can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. I've been a customer for over a year, and I'm loving the product. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Okay, on to the show today, and we've got something a little bit different. While I was down in Nashville, a place I've fallen completely in love with, I thought it would be a cool idea to get some Bitcoiners down to a bar, record a live episode of the show with some of my friends. So I asked my buddies, Preston Pish and Marty Bent, to come down, hang out, drink whiskey, and talk Bitcoin. And you know what was very cool? The event sold out in about 12 hours. Super, super cool. Now, with Marty and Preston, it was always going to be a banger, but I really enjoyed doing this in front of a live audience. It was a bit different to a normal episode. It was very interactive, and we took a load of questions from the audience, which was really cool. Now, the world is opening back up, and I am traveling again, and I'm thinking of doing a few more of these live events, maybe once a quarter, maybe even doing one in Austin when I'm back here later in the month. I do want to say a massive thanks to Brandon and the team at Bitcoin Magazine who'd helped us with the venues while we were in Nashville. Anyway, hope you enjoy this one. If you've got any questions, you know you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. All right, let's get into the show. Uh, I've got some questions for these guys, uh, but I think I'm also going to open up to the floor because I'm sure you're all a bunch of smart people. You've probably got some questions as well. 
Um, but yeah, just uh, a big thanks to Marty and Preston for doing this, and thank you to all of you for coming. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Marty, and I think you're going to throw in some stuff here as well, Preston. Should we talk about inflation? <laughs> What's that? Well, listen, we're seeing it everywhere. Like, there's a lot of problems in the UK at the moment. We just... I was about to say we had a problem with uh, truck drivers. Uh, <laughs> we had a fuel crisis in the UK. Uh, speaking to some friends and family, they couldn't fill up their cars. Um, there's been a 250% increase in uh, wholesale gas prices. Uh, we've got energy companies going to the wall. There's, like, problems everywhere. I've been sending you pictures of stuff I've been seeing here. Mm-hmm. It's... I mean, frankly, it's scary to a certain extent. Like, I, I, I just drove down from Jersey, 13-hour car ride, and I was just telling Peter before we came up here, like, I was trying to kill time calling people, and I called one of my buddies who runs a logistics company out of Chicago, and he was explaining, I was like, dude, how bad is it? And he was like, it is really bad. So they have problems getting truckers. And so he was explaining to me, their, their revenue per load has gone up 50% year on year, like this time from last year, which is like, oh, you guys are making more money. It's like, no, like, cost us that much more or people that much more to ship things across the country. It's like we, we never, it would usually take five to six years to see a 50% increase in revenue, like over a period of time. We've seen that in one year. And then like you, the pictures you sent me, we've been talking about this a lot, like empty shelves, like that's a sign. Like inflation is not only in price, it's in the accessibility of goods as well. Like you cannot, there's some places in the country and throughout the world where you cannot get, what you want to get in the UK petrol right now. You're seeing it the natural gas crisis in the UK right now, like energy prices are going up. So that's, it's, and it's happened to everything, food, energy, and it seems like it's coalescing into a major shitstorm. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> is it transitory? <laughs> no, no. And you can tell Jerome Powell is starting to like regret ever calling it transitory. He's like legitimately scared. That's the thing, like, I don't know, is it malice or incompetence? And you go back and forth of uh, it being either or. And like, you can tell the Fed targets inflation. That's their, uh, essentially what they do with their monetary policy. Last year, they started trying to over overshoot their 2% historical target. And now they're way over it. And they're trying to downplay how bad it is. So they're called, first, they called it transitory. And then you had uh, Biden's head economic counsel come out a few weeks ago and say, hey, if you take poultry meat or poultry uh, beef and chicken out of your food prices, there's really no inflation. It's like pretty much the core staple foods here in the United States. And so they're, they're posturing like everything's okay, everything's okay, but there's little creaks in there. Uh, they're posturing that basically shows like, oh shit, there's something terribly wrong. And, I, and this is, I don't want to keep rambling here, but this is predictable. If you shut down an economy, you print a bunch of money, and you, you don't have goods being produced on the back end. This is the natural order of things. Like people have been calling this out since the economy started locking down last April. Preston, the uh, quoted inflation rate is five point four percent. Do we agree with that? I can come up with with any inflation number you want. You want 5% inflation, you want 2% inflation, you want 50% inflation, you want negative 5% inflation. I can create a basket of goods, services, whatever, and construct whatever inflation number you want me to construct. Um, it's a matter of whether you continue to use that as your, as your basket as time progresses, right? 
So um, as an example, like since I've held Bitcoin in 2015, uh, my inflation rate against the dollar is about 100% annually, right? So we could use that as my as what I'm measuring against. And so if you're talking about hyperinflation, that's typically something above 50%. So in my opinion, Bitcoin is hyperinflation against the, the dollar, right? Or the dollar is hyperinflating against Bitcoin, I mean. Um, so why is that important? So when you think about like, why is this inflation number that you got CPI that the Fed is printing, they're changing it. Why are they changing? Because they want to construct it in a way that allows them to do what they need to do with interest rates. And that's what it's all about. So when you think about how everything, literally everything on the entire planet is constructed in, in its value, whether it's a bond, whether it's a stock, whether it's real estate, anything, it starts with your understanding of inflation. So if the money supply is inflating, and let's just use simple numbers, is inflating at 2%, which is their target, right? If those units, if those digital units of the dollar, the yen, the euro, all of them are combined and it's only inflating and expanding at 2%, everything is then constructed in valuation terms on top of that, a premium above that 2%. So let's just say they're inflating the currency by 2%. Fixed income should maybe be 2% above that. Your equities should be maybe another 2% on top of the fixed income premiums. And you should, that should be priced at maybe 5%. And this is just a, you know, a generic model. And so what it really comes down to is like, what is inflation, right? For me, when I'm thinking about how I would personally define inflation, if I was going to try to make it in a way that you could then do the mathematics on value of everything on top of that, I would say, and Lynn and Michael Saylor and others talk about this quite a bit, is they're using the M2 money supply because that's what's actually expanding the units that everybody is using. In, they're not using Bitcoin. Most 99.9% of people are not using Bitcoin to, as a unit of account. So they're using these, these fiat units. And when you look at that M2 money supply growth just over the last decade, the compound annual growth rate of that is anywhere from 10 to 15%, depending on which currency you're actually talking about. So if that's the actual inflation rate, is that M2 money supply growth, the units that are being put into the system, how they're nesting themselves, those units are nesting themselves into real estate or stocks or uh, corn or whatever, you name it, right? It's nesting itself into those different things. And in various ways and at various growth rates uh, to represent those units that are expanding by double digits. And so that's the thing that I think so many miss, and it's such an important question. In in my opinion, it's like the most fundamental piece of all of this is understanding what is inflation. And I used to tweet about it like all the time, and I'd put hashtag how do you measure, everyone laughs at how I say that word, um, how do you measure inflation? Like, what is inflation? Some of my ideas on it. Well, it feels to me like every administration is kicking the can down the road. There is uh, almost a blinking contest between China and the US. Um, but at some point, a massive correction will have to happen somehow. I think, I mean, so... 
And I think it's going to come from energy markets. I read a great blog post. Uh, he goes by Cuppy. He's a hedge fund manager. I forget his, the name of his blog, but he wrote a great piece yesterday. I actually think I'm going to write about tonight. It is like, the energy crisis that's looming could be the next Lehman moment where you have, again, I think all this stems from whether it be the inflation of the monetary units or the energy crisis that we're beginning to experience and will encounter more aggressively as we move forward through time is just top-down control over these markets, whether it be monetary good markets, which are completely centralized and have been since the 70s, or energy markets, which are becoming more and more top-down controlled by the government deciding what energy sources we are allowed to use. And so like in the UK, uh, a lot of Europe is decommissioned, very reliable nuclear power plants, natural gas power plants here in the U.S., uh, Biden administering administration came in and banned new mineral rights leases on federal land. And there's a lot of uh, politics around fracking for natural gas. And, but like, and there's a transition to renewables that are, that are pretty unreliable. And, and these sort of top-down diktats of how you're supposed to run these, what are supposed to be free markets, are creating unnatural uh, supply shortages, which naturally leads to uh, inflation of the price as demand stays steady or rises because humans, there's 8 billion, there's going to be more every day They're competing for scarcer and scarcer energy resources. And so energy is the base of the economy. If, if you have runaway inflation in energy markets, the Fed just can't print money and throw it at energy producers and say, give us, it's not like a bank, you can give them collateral and say, here's your collateral, you're better, you're better capitalized, like you can lend out money. You can't just throw money at an energy producer and say, give me gas now. It's like, well, this is a process. I need to drill a well. I need to build a pipeline. I need to get it to market. And, that, and there's a significant lag in that. And energy is something that everybody understands, and it makes up a, a substantial portion of their, of their uh, expenses in a month. And so if you're watching the energy prices just rip, everyone's scratching their head and saying, like, why are they printing these inflation numbers of whatever when the price of this is going up and home builders, I had somebody start building me a house, right? This isn't me. I'm just saying it. Um, somebody would be like, I've just had them start building me a house and it's twice as expensive as what I was originally quoted, right? So like people are looking at the CPI prints and they're saying, that doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. It's- and the supply chain stuff is, is going to continue to wreak havoc on this reality of price of your commodity prices ripping to the upside and then in the backdrop of that you have so like they're they're actually printing cpi at 5.2 percent right so that's here but your 10-year treasury is at 1.3 right so there's a negative four percent real yield that you're guaranteed to lose money on based on that spread so who the hell wants to own that bond right you, you want to guarantee to lose money Sign up for the buy some bonds then. That's, that's the situation today. But where else will you put your money? <laughs> Good question. I know where I got mine, right? I have all my liquid assets <laughs> in Bitcoin. I can tell you that right well, now. Well, yeah, I think, I think we all know what, what we're meant to do with our money. <sighs> um, but the, the energy thing is really interesting, Marty, because uh, if you're talking about the inflation being driven through the energy markets, I think that makes me understand better why you're so concerned about the ESG narrative, which you've been you know, pretty firmly against. You had a great debate with Michael Saylor. I thought you both I'm handled just, it well. I'm paranoid. I'm paranoid. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, people think I'm just some um, like, 
oil guzzling, environment hating, like <laughs> capitalist. And it's like, no, I, mean, I, I like to clean my beaches. I've lived, I'm moving to Austin, but I've lived on a barrier island for the last two years and I go there every summer for my whole life. Like, I, I truly care about the environment, but I also care about, not, it's not mutually exclusive, I care about the environment and humanity. And energy is the base of human flourishing in the modern age. And if you fuck up energy markets, like, you fuck up the economy. And that's, they're actively moving us. So any energy transition throughout history, when we move from like wood to kerosene to uh, more uh, advanced hydrocarbons like gasoline and eventually natural gas and stuff like that. The, the, and, and hopefully nuclear. The nuclear has been, bas- or been lambasted as some dirty energy when it's the cleanest energy on the planet. But like each energy transition has been deflationary in the sense that it drives prices lower and it makes it more energy dense. And the energy transition that the ESG movement and the powers that be are trying to force on the markets does the exact opposite. It's less energy dense and it's more expensive. Like we've seen, and we've seen it play out. Germany is a perfect case study of this. They've made this transition over the last 20 years, decommissioned a number of nuclear power plants, a number of natural gas power plants, and now they have the highest residential electricity rate in the world, which is like 36 cents a kilowatt hour, which is absurd. And they're trying to bring that over here. And that's not good for humanity. Humanity uh, uplifts itself from poverty. Like if the third world countries want to join the developed world, they need cheap energy dense power. And like, the way the ESG movement is moving is like, no, you can't have that. Like you need this unreliable, less dense, more expensive energy source. How many people saw the uh, Gary Ginsler video today on ESG? What do you say? I've been in the car all day. What do you say? (laughs) So there's this uh, video from when he was teaching at MIT where one of the students asked him like his thoughts on the energy consumption of Bitcoin. And he very thoughtfully responded with, which is the exact same way that I see this in that, like, what is your opportunity cost? Like, what are, what, is, what are you comparing it to? Just like the inflation number, right? So when you're talking about the energy consumption of Bitcoin, compared to the existing system, the existing fiat system, how much energy does it, does it take in order to manage the existing system versus this other alternate system that we're you know, all big fans of? So how, would you, how did he go about answering this? Well, he said, well, Everybody who's swiping a card, if you're over there and you swipe your card, this business here is incurring a fee of anywhere from 2 to 2.9% for that swipe, right? How about your Fedwire? If you're buying a house today, right, what's that cost to make sure you have immediate settlement, not immediate, but you have a one-day settlement using Fedwire? $45, $25, depending on what your bank charges, right? So let's look at those fees and let's assume that most people that are conducting a transaction, I don't know what the percent would be on a global scale, but it'd be massive. Let's just say 80% of all the transactions on the planet today come through some type of swiping for the clearance, the cost two to 3% of the transaction, of that transaction that you did. Um, So when you add that up on a global scale, what's that cost? Now compare that to the clearance of of mining a few coins today and pretty much no fees on on the Lightning Network and the continued no fees on the Lightning Network 
uh, when you think about the breadth of what that would look like at full scale. Now let's compare those two and let's compare the cost and the ESG that's associated with those two alternative systems. It completely falls apart. It's completely laughable when you look at it in comparison. And I don't think anybody's talking about it. And I don't think anybody's writing about it except for a few people. Nydig, uh, Lynn Alden had an amazing piece that she wrote about it. And I think more people need to start writing about it and looking at it those, in those terms. And I just find the whole thing to be really ironic that the guy who's the SEC chairman right now it f basically laid it out in that exact way when he was at MIT teaching the course on Bitcoin. So I think he's a Bitcoiner. I said that. I think you, he's okay. a hardcore Bitcoiner. Yeah. He hates his bag, His bags are <laughs> packed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've beaten this dead horse, but people, people just honestly don't understand how energy markets work, how you extract natural resources and turn them into electricity and, and deliver that to the market. And they just see energy consumption and assume it's bad. And as I'm sure most of you know, yeah, the natural incentives of the Bitcoin mining industry are to go find the cheapest energy source possible. And that, Amen so happens to be wasted energy. It's energy that people are literally willing to set on fire, natural gas, what we do at Great American Mining. We go, hey, don't waste that natural gas. We'll run it through a generator and mine Bitcoin with it. Uh, people go into hydroelectric dams saying, hey, you have excess capacity. Let's, let's give you some revenue and we'll get some economic value out of that, that electricity. Gravity, stop. Things. Stop the gravity so that the water doesn't go over the side of it. Like, yeah. we're, we're wasting energy. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's FUD that stems from just plain ignorance, frankly. Well, we'll come back to mining because uh, I know that's a subject you love well. Yeah. Uh, Preston, Greg Foss has been talking about uh, the risks within the system right now. He's talking about potential sovereign defaults, uh, the contagion from what might be happening in China. Um, what are the key things that you're looking at? What are you worried about? I mean, when, when I'm looking at the Evergrande situation over in China, um, there's so much that China can do from just a policy standpoint and they're so secretive and they have all these methods to hide what they're doing uh, within that country. And so it's, it's really hard to really kind of understand the extent of like how bad that potentially is. I just know from a competition standpoint, like here in the United States, uh, insurance is very competitive and um, what you find is that they get so competitive that maybe they're implementing policies that turn into systematic type risk. And I'm not saying that that's here in the U.S. I'm just using that as an example. So when I look at Evergrande and you look at it from a property development standpoint in China, you look at it culturally from China, most people in China, 70% of their net worth is stored in real estate. For whatever reason, that's how they... That's how they culturally uh, respond to investing there. Uh, probably because the price of real estate just keeps going up. Real interest rates keep going down. Price of everything keeps going up, right? Well, what happened so, last time? <laughs> <laughs> well, so here we are. And you got to look at the time frame, right? So this has been going on for decades. They keep compressing that. They keep shoving more and more of whatever disposable income they have into real estate developers, are highly incentivized to just keep building as much as they possibly can. And at a certain point, you, you start outstripping the number of people that have, dis, have remaining disposable income to buy a full property. And then the developers are, are leaning forward and they've got all these skyscrapers that are half built and there's no buyers. 
right? Well, what happens to the prices? Well, the prices start going down. People start getting scared. They're saying, oh, well, it was 100,000 last month and now it's 70,000. I better sell this. And then the contagion steps in and then it gets mathematical because they're levered and all of those things start playing out. And that's what's happening in real time right now in China with the Evergrande situation, $300 billion worth of liabilities on the balance sheet of Evergrande alone. Um, you have two other competitors in that space that I suspect China is going to try to force those half-constructed properties that make up $200 billion of the $300 billion of liabilities on their balance sheet. They're going to try to start pushing those into those two other companies. Uh, Country Garden is one. and Cynic? Yes. Mm-hmm. So these two other uh, companies that are equally in market cap or in liability size, they're going to try to force that over there. Well, the problem is, is when you've been that competitive in that space for that many years, a decade plus, um, they're going to receive that because the government's going to tell them to receive it. But then they're receiving stuff that's like, can you imagine as a contractor receiving somebody else's half, half-ass built project and saying, hey, you're going to put that on your balance sheet. No, you're going to figure it out, right? It's like, it takes time for that to work itself out. And although the government's going to be trying to pull the strings, I think where you're going to see the weakness start to percolate up is in all the foreign banks, all the foreign lenders that uh, their capital was brought into the into the country, you're going to see them get totally taken for a ride. And then that could potentially spill into contagion into the rest of the market. You're seeing the the equity markets kind of respond to that. You're seeing a little bit of the fixed income space respond to it. Um, but it's really hard to know, like, is this another Lehman event or not? I think it has the potential to be one, but I'm not at the point where I would say, yep, that's, that's what this is. I, I don't know that. Do we know how much exposure uh, U.S. banks maybe have? You won't find out until you know, right? Like, yeah. If stuff yeah, gets, yeah. Until stuff gets like washed out with the. Because they might have, they might have promises from other banks that. You know, I mean, it's credit; it's all promises, right? You don't know if it's constructed to some bank in Europe that then it was sold to you to another a bank in Denmark to then the U.S. Yeah. And so that's yeah to Marty's point. And this is. I mean, it's predictable. You've just been following the Chinese, like, ghost city market. I think it's been going on for, like, a decade now. Like, you can't... That's the other thing about the opaque nature of China. Like, it's the one, I guess, some could see it as a benefit of the Chinese Communist Party. They can just paper over this stuff and try to band-aid over it longer than, than probably other countries that are more transparent can. But... It doesn't seem like a good situation. And then China's having energy problems now, too. They're, yeah. they're asking provinces to shut down factories and stuff to lessen the load on the grid. It's quite a surreal situation watching, you know, going into places like Starbucks and they haven't got any sandwiches. They can't produce them. Uh, queues at gas stations in the UK, like Venezuelan. Uh, and it's not going away anytime soon. Like and this, this situation is, yeah, it's not yeah. changing. It just feels there's so much weird stuff happening at the moment. Like yeah. uh, most of my life has been fairly stable and easy. And I feel like we're heading into quite concerning times. I'm moving to Texas for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> I'm moving to Nashville. <laughs> yeah. oh, I kind of have to now, don't I? <laughs> Any oh, realtors out here? <laughs> uh, so I do want to uh, open up the questions to the floor at some point, but I do want to talk to you a little bit about mining. Mm-hmm. It's your uh, big subject. Um, so, what is the 
following the uh, banning of mining in China, how is how has the market kind of like reset itself? It's in the process of resetting. So it seems like the most recent news from earlier this week or last week, uh, it seems like a, a good ban to the point where Bitmain's come out and said, yes, we have to move our operations. And so two big players in the ASIC manufacturing realm. You have Bitmain, obviously, the MicroBT. Bitmain makes the amp miners. MicroBT makes the uh, what's miners. So the way it works... Bitmain has their chip foundry in Taiwan. They use TSMC. MicroBT uses Samsung in South Korea. But uh, Bitmain manufactures and assembles their ASICs in China. So right now, from what I've heard, uh, Kevin Zhang from Foundry is usually a good source. Has said that they're working to reallocate their their assembly factories into Malaysia and Taiwan. So that's Thailand, not Taiwan. Uh, Malaysia and Thailand, uh, and that's going to take time. So and that and that's a process that throws a wrench. And they actually had that's why the S seventeens, uh, those A six were so shitty because they they when McCree and Jihan had their split, uh, McCree had the manufacturing and it wasn't what it was in China, and, and so they, they had poor A six quality in that run until they got back into China after they figured that out. So that with Bitmain specifically, as they try to reshuffle that that supply chain into other countries, you could see uh, backup and orders getting shipped and potentially lower quality. I don't that's yet to be seen, but there will be some disruption there. Micro BT, I'm pretty sure they've had their assembly in Malaysia already, so they're pretty much inoculated from this the most recent ban. Um, but yeah, I think there's going to be ASICs. It's going to be hard to get ASICs, uh, Matt. Odell has been saying on Rabbit Hole Recap for like the last three weeks, he's like the only thing that's going to be more scarce than Bitcoin next year is like ASICs to <laughs> to actually produce the Bitcoin. Are they selling a, a huge premium right now? Right now, I believe S19s are around like 15 grand. I haven't checked the price. Wow. Um, but I think we'll see like tw- Adam from Upstream, he's confident that we're going to see like $25,000 ASICs at some point next year. And it makes sense. I mean, it's not only a product of them getting kicked out of China, it's the whole semiconductor uh, industry outside of Bitcoin at large for car manufacturers, for anything, is, is pretty borked right now. And Bitcoin miners are pretty low end uh, of the totem pole when it comes to foundry space. The Apples and the Toyotas and the Hondas of the world are going to be able to get space on the, uh, on the floors to actually make the, the chips necessary. Um, before Bitcoin miners. Wow. Preston, do you mine? No. Okay. I have a node. You have a node? <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of the mining industry, Preston? It's been, um, um, it seems there'll be a lot of movement uh, in here in the US. I've been down to a couple of the events in Houston. There's a lot of oil and gas people interested, a lot of growth. Uh, the, way I, the way I try to think of it from an economic standpoint is I just think gold miners. I, I try to construct my view of it like that, but with a twist. And the twist is um, every four years, they, the, the crust of the earth changes its composition of how much gold is there. It's, there's half as much. And uh, that's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it is every two weeks, it doesn't matter how many more people you show up to at your gold mine. Um, it's it, the difficulty of that tries to polarize itself to a certain difficulty level, right? So if you kind of look at it from that framework, um, I think you're able to just kind of 
see why these jumps kind of occur. So like when I think about gold and I think about how it has like this homeostasis on the price based on the demand that's there, but more importantly, the amount of people that are trying to pull it and extract it out of the ground, um, it kind of brings it to that stock to flow valuation. And I know there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, emotion over <laughs> uh, stock to flow. I think it's I think it's a model that um, if you're saying it's going to peg itself at a hundred thousand because this model with this math, I think you're. I don't look at it that way. I look at it more as a model that demonstrates like production cost to extract this thing out of the ground or out of the out of these rigs or out of thin air or whatever you want to yeah, use digital ether. Yeah. Digital ether. Um, it keeps getting more scarce, and because it keeps getting more scarce, and as long as the demand is there to keep clawing them out of the ether, which to me is represented by the uh, continued growth in the hash rate, that's the demonstration that the demand is constantly there. And since it's only issued at, at a 10 minute time period, statistically, you know, on average, that, that demand kind of has a constant dropping into the market. Now the demand for using it as a store of value is completely different and separate from that, which is what I think allows it to blow out the price, has this, this ability to kind of blow out way beyond what a stock to flow or what I would refer to as a production cost floor uh, level. Because guys like Marty, who understand what they think the value of it is or what his cost is to extract it out of the ground. If the price goes below that threshold, and now it's cheaper for him to go borrow a bunch of money at nothing percent interest rate and just buy Bitcoin with it, He's going to do that instead of mining it at a higher cost. And so they kind of become these buyers that they kind of know with that. And I'm talking from a net level globally. They're looking at it from that lens. And so when I think stock to flow, I think production costs. And I think of this thing that just keeps ratcheting itself up every four years because of this thing that's happening in the ether that's not possible in the physical realm. So that's how I think about mining and like the role that it plays in, in price because everybody likes to talk about price. Um, and then there's all these other ins- like just amazing incentives that are built inside of that as far as security, the 10-minute blocks, the block size as part of that security. I mean, there's just a, the amount of things that are going on in, in what appears to be such a simple little thing is just, it's yeah, it's, it's divine. I mean, it's totally crazy. Well, it's crazy on multiple levels. You're explaining like the the technical aspects of it, how it actually happens, a difficulty adjustment, a hash rate, uh, miners' reflexivity to the price, but then like there's a meat space impact that mining has, which is obviously I think mining, the Bitcoin mining industry is going to incentivize us to usher in a new energy renaissance. We're going to be the most energy efficient we've ever been as a species because Bitcoin mining just literally uh, incentivizes forces it, yeah. forces it. Our incentives are. It doesn't incentivize – the energy incentivizes us to consume it, right, because it's cheap, um, semantics argument. But mm. not only that, like what we see in the field, like I'm convinced – so we, we mine Bitcoin on well pads, and uh, one of the biggest factors of us being able to do that successfully with optimal uptime is having generators that are up and running and uh, as consistently and as long as possible – so you have these like second and third order effects that mining is going to have on the meat space world, where I think it's going to drive innovations, not only 
uh, in the, the consumption of energy, but like the, the areas around that, like generation, electricity generation, like I think mining is going to make generation equipment extremely more efficient and, and it's going to give it more longevity. And then on top of that, just to put a cherry on top of all of this, within the global landscape of mining right now, there's a golden opportunity. Like who's going to take the crown? With China banning everything, they had the lion's share of hash rate for the first 12 years of Bitcoin's existence. And now we're at this point, it's like, all right, who's going to take all the ASICs? Who's going to take the opportunity? And it's very interesting, particularly as an American, as you see uh, DC and all the politicians like posture, like, do we like Bitcoin? Do we not? And and then you see the, the energy guys starting to get it and they're like, no, we're, we're going to go for this. So uh, that's what I'm looking looking at the next two to three years is like, can the energy industry get mining integrated into their business operations faster than the politicians could fuck it up? And I'm confident that that's going to happen. Well, it's quite interesting in Texas that uh, both Governor Abbott and Senator Cruz seem to be becoming Bitcoiners. And I don't know if that's just to be popular and get votes or they they actually believe in it. But it's having spent a lot of time there, I understand why you're moving there. It feels, uh, Bitcoin feels a very American idea. Bitcoin mining feels a very American idea. And it feels a very Texan idea. So I would expect with a huge amount of uh, investment going into mining within Texas, that will lead to political capital, which will become a defense of Bitcoin. It's not even Texas, even in Pennsylvania, which teeters from blue and red depending on what election year it is but you have that that gucci gas and the marcella shell up in pennsylvania west virginia new york uh they're going to participate as well and that's the thing like again the incentives are so strong a lot of these producers are either wasting their gas or they're not getting a a, mar- a profit margin on it at market that they're happy with so they can use Bitcoin to eliminate waste and turn that into a positive revenue stream, or they can use it as a competitor to the utility companies they're selling their energy to, to basically help them get more profitability out of their molecules. And so just from a pure business perspective for these energy producers, whether it be natural gas, nuclear, hydroelectric, like Bitcoin is another buyer, another market for them to sell their energy to. And and if you're a savvy businessman or if you care about profitability and getting the most efficiency out of the energy you're pulling out of the ground or producing like Bitcoin, you have to implement Bitcoin. It's the only mechanism to make these molecules profitable uh, in these, basically in these locations where electricity cannot be consumed, but with other processes. I'm going to do one more big question uh, over to you first, Preston, and then I'll open up to the floor. Um, So, we had a country make Bitcoin legal tender this year, which was quite a quite a significant uh, moment. I don't think uh, I don't think many of us saw that coming at the start of the year. Uh, outside of the politics, because let's separate Bukele and who he is from the actual decision. Uh, within three months of making the announcement, you could go to any coffee shop, any Starbucks, and you could buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin. You could go to any McDonald's and buy a cheeseburger with Bitcoin. You can now go to any Walmart. They've managed to integrate and roll out Bitcoin across the whole country in three months, which is kind of mind-blowing. It's obviously an important story. It's obviously important in terms of Bitcoin. But what are the things you're watching? Because one of the things that Bukele said, he said, this has to work. <laughs> I'm popular now, but if this doesn't work, you know, <laughs> that'll quickly change. This has to work. I think, I think we all want it to work. 
Um, what are the kind of things you're watching there in terms of El Salvador? I heard there was a podcaster that went down there and even interviewed them. Um, <laughs> uh, the thing for me that I just find just fascinating about all of this, and I, I don't think it's being covered in a way that it should be, this is lightning, right? Like, this is layer two Bitcoin. Like, I just remember coming into the space and... Uh, the big narrative when I first came in was Bitcoin can't scale. It can't do enough transactions. It can't do, like nobody's going to buy a cup of coffee and stand there for 30 minutes hoping they get into the next block to know whether you cleared or not. I mean, you had Mike Hearn, you had these people that were like leaving, like this is a dead end project. This thing's dead, right? 2017 comes along and they're like, okay, we, we solved it with SegWit. And I think everybody was like, okay, uh, I guess I'll keep holding and I, and why did I say holding? <laughs> Kept, keep hodling. Duh. And, uh, <laughs> and it was like this, this promise or this, this far-fetched idea that no one even knew if it would work, right? Here we are, like not far from that just being implemented at core. And you got, an, you got a country that is using it full scale and every single like business, more importantly, like the thing that the thing that blew my mind with this, the journalist, I don't know the, the guy's name, maybe you guys know who it is. He goes to test this out and he goes to the McDonald's, he scans Aaron. Aaron Van Wooden. Yeah. He goes Legend. he goes to the McDonald's, he pulls up his the QR code to pay with Bitcoin. Instead of paying, he takes a picture of it. He posts the picture on Twitter and he says, hey, can somebody buy me a hamburger, right? And within, like, because of Twitter, the way Twitter is, somebody's sitting there right next to their full node opening channels, right? And they're like, well, I'll buy him a hamburger and they just pay him, boom. Payment goes through in El Salvador. He has no idea who even paid it, but he got his hamburger, right? Like, this is what's happening right now. And the thing that's just so crazy to me, I don't think CNBC, like these people just don't even understand what the hell is happening, right? Do you want to know also is interesting <laughs> about the McDonald's thing is when I went to do it, I, I expected to be given a phone to scan and pay like yeah, I was yeah. in Starbucks. It was you go to McDonald's, they've got it in the screens. You know yeah. the screens where you go and order your food? It comes up with a QR code on that screen within the McDonald's interface. And the question I haven't had answered that I'd like to find out is like, how much, like, can they hack it themselves? Do they have to go to McDonald's in the US and say, you know, how does this work? How do they get to the point where the software integrates Bitcoin? Because this is advertising to McDonald's globally. It's crazy. And what they're also going to realize is that they're not paying any transaction fees. None. And so it was like, uh, and you might have saw me just like having fun on Twitter yesterday. I was, you know, people were there whining about like, I don't have the Twitter integration for people to tip me. And I was like, no, we can do that right now. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm in New York and Strike isn't enabled here. And I said, dude, just go into, download a blue wallet, create an invoice for a dollar and take a screenshot and post it in this thread on Twitter. Post it here. I'll pay it. Right? So the person posted the QR code right there on Twitter. And I said, 
it looks like Bitcoin works in the state of New York. And I said, show your receipt that you got paid, right? And we did it over Twitter right now, right? And I didn't have to ask for permission from anybody. I ran it from my node to his blue wallet, which he probably didn't have custody of it, right? But if he, he could, that's the thing that's important. He could. Everybody has the option to do that from anywhere on the planet. Encrypted channel. Your internet service provider doesn't even know that it happened, right? They don't even, they, they, it's just a packet flow to, through their processing, right? How the hell do you stop that? You don't. You can't. You don't. <laughs> you don't stop it, right? So you embrace it. I think this is the untold story of El Salvador in this, like, because the question I kept asking myself with Lightning, when, especially when it first stood up in 2017, I was like, what's the incentive for people to start opening channels? What's that incentive look like? And I think we're seeing it real time in such an unprecedented way by a country saying, we're open for business with Lightning Network today, now. It's crazy, it's crazy. It's crazy. So that's, that's my takeaway from El Salvador. And there's, there's multiple layers to it. Like there's the technical aspect, Lightning, being integrated and them adopting that. There's some thoughts on that, but also like the cultural, like it's the first nation state domino to fall. And that is a huge first step. Like there's only- Who's next? Yeah, I, Panama maybe, I don't know. Panama? I don't know, but I don't come now, like I'm, obviously I'm one of the most optimistic people in Bitcoin in the world, but I think you mentioned SegWit earlier. Why did SegWit eventually get uh, merged as a soft fork because it was a for there was a forcing function of a high fee market. It was like, all right, fees are high, people are not happy sending fees on chain. Like, we need SegWit to help reduce the fee pressure, right? So that was that forcing function. It wasn't fun. Like, Bcash came out, we're like, oh, we can do it better. And there was a lot of confusion. It was there was a lot of friction just because the nature of the protocol at that time. And SegWit enabled Lightning Network, and we have that. And El Salvador's adopting it, but I do want to caution, like, as we're using Bitcoin, we're basically exploring an unknown territory where we're like, have our hands out, we're walking into an abyss, and we're trying to figure out where the walls are. So I think we'll have similar experiences with Lightning. The point I'm trying to make is there could be instances where Lightning comes up short, but it'll just highlight a pain point that needs to be fixed moving forward. And that's the beauty of it. We need, we need the El Salvadors of the world to begin adopting this and, and putting pressure on the network so we know what needs to be fixed. And that's another aspect of this where we're gonna find out what needs to be better and Bitcoiners will identify that and then build and, and make it even stronger from there. Um, so there's like the cultural aspect and then us helping, or the them adopting it, helping the rest of the world figure out the limits of the stack as it grows. All right, uh, I'm gonna open it up for some questions now. I've got more if, uh, oh, that's quick. Thanks, guys. So if the U.S. federal government voluntarily moves to a Bitcoin standard, do you think that uh, they keep a branded U.S. dollar? And does that happen as a side chain or something else? That's a big question. I don't think they'd ever overtly adopt a Bitcoin standard. Just because, obviously, a lot of the debts in the United States and our global debt is denominated in dollars. So I think... 
and you can make the argument that doing it right now, they're just slowly but surely they're having these debates in D.C. Like, oh, we're going to regulate. We're not going to regulate. But while that's happening, like I said, the energy industry is getting in more everyday Americans are adopting Bitcoin. That's I mean, the state of the federal government, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. dollar is that they've decided to default on the U.S. dollar. They're, they're already defaulting on it. They're just not doing it overtly where they're saying we're not going to pay back our debt. They're doing it by saying we're going to print trillions of dollars and print our way into bankruptcy. And so they're already doing that. They've already essentially, they'll never come out and say because it it's politically untenable, but you just look at their actions and that's exactly what they're doing. Governments have done it many times throughout history. And so I think there are certain individuals in the halls of the federal government, the Federal Reserve, that uh, Gary Gensler might be one of them, and are just like, all right, let's get Bitcoin into as many hands as possible, or let it flourish, and let our citizens adopt it um, while we hyperinflate the U.S. dollar away. Like, Bitcoin is that safe boat, and I, I think letting Americans adopt it and using it in a self-sovereign fashion may be like a, a light like endorsement of, all right, like we fucked up, like keep, keep buying this stuff. I would just say that your elected officials want to keep calm and they don't want social unrest first and foremost. And so uh, taking an action like that would probably create a frenzy of activity. I mean, let's just take an example. Like if Janet Yellen sits down at some type of testimony and she's like, you know, I really think we should adopt Bitcoin and put it on our balance sheet here in this country. Like what would, what would happen in the next 12 hours? If that statement was made, right, it would it would wreak havoc on the global economy. So um, I think they're, the reason that they will never ever go down that path until it just takes over, um, and even then, I doubt that they would be talking about it openly because it would just maybe cause even more disruption to the the events that would be unfolding. So I don't see that happening. Um, maybe on the other side of this, you see countries try to have a currency that is backed by Bitcoin, maybe? Um, I mean, go back to like the free banking systems that existed in Scotland and Canada like in the early 19th century, late 19th the, century. The, the hard sell on that is going to be really, be, like the whole reason a currency exists is because when you look at the divisibility of gold, it's, it doesn't work. And so you have to have some type of you know, paper on top of that in order to allow it to to service the entire global economy. And so when you look at Bitcoin, it's divisible. And so that whole requirement for paper really goes away. And so uh, exciting time to be a human being. First time planet's ever seen anything like that. Yeah. U.S. government, the federal government at least, will never come out and endorse Bitcoin as the reserve currency of the country. Because like Preston said, there would be global calamity. Yeah. Would be rich though. Yeah, we would. Yeah. yeah, we'd be rich and people would be trying to rip our arms off. Yeah. Um, do you have a question over there? Do you want to come and say it on the mic? It almost feels like the United States then is at a huge disadvantage to every other country in the world because we are the global reserve currency, right? I mean, are we that much less flexible oh. because everything else depends on you know, being stable? It's like that. That feels like that status is being slowly lost. Yeah, I mean, you certainly have countries like China the dig and from Russia. the UK. Yeah, the dig from the UK. Well, you have China and Russia, other countries dumping their treasuries, buying more gold. 
But yes, it's a disadvantage that the U.S. federal government, the Federal Reserve, is a huge disadvantage compared to their counterparts around the world. U.S. citizens, though, us as individuals, like we can take advantage of this right now. And I, again, like I said, I, I bet there's people in high places who make decisions. We'll never say this overtly, but they they sort of have a panicked worry. Like I hope enough people and enough businesses and enough states adopt Bitcoin that there can be somewhat less of a calamity. Uh, to, to your question, the countries based in a fiat world, the fiat that has the biggest network effect, which is the dollar, I think is going to have the, uh, the biggest challenge to retain the power that comes with in the, uh, the influence that comes with having that status because it comes with the luxury of having that status. So when you transition to something that, uh, that is a global settlement layer that everybody's using on the planet, um, so there, there's an uphill battle for, for the participants that had that luxury um, to transition to something new, collectively speaking. Individually, I mean, I'm with Marty all day long, like, right? Like, everyone in this room's gonna be fine. Next up, I talked to Marty and Preston Moore in Nashville about Bitcoin and macro. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. Okay, let's talk about BlockFi, who recently announced the launch of the BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. Now, if you are in the US and you own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card is the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. You don't just get that 1.5% back though. For the first three months you own the card, you get 3.5% back in Bitcoin. And for everything you spend annually over $50,000, you're going to get 2% back in Bitcoin. If you're interested in finding out more, then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for Binance and Bitcoin. But as ever, as I tell you every week, I have still not sold a single sat through Gemini because we're in a bull market. We are crushing it. No one's getting my sats. Come on. What do you think? Now, I am using the Gemini app. I'm buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. Also, what are you doing for storing your Bitcoin? Let's talk about Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, hardware wallets allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, and I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, and the Nano S I bought back then, I am still using now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And also, if you're an Android phone user, you can connect that to your Nano S and manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And this week, we're going to finish on Compass Mining, who are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of theirs. I am back mining Bitcoin, and I've been mining for 51 days now, and I've already mined 0.162 Bitcoin, worth over $8,850. With the price of Bitcoin rising, this is nearly, almost nearly paid off the first of my five S19s. It's so good to be back mining, and I really love working with Compass. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate, and it's so easy to do. 
Anyone can mine with Compass. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they will do all the other work for you. If you are interested in mining or want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-G dot I-O. Repeat the question. Where do I see Bitcoin in 2050? I, you, yeah. And is, am I worried about the centralization of hash rates? I see the energy industry, energy producers being the largest miners in the world. It's just going to happen. It's the natural incentives. They have all the access. That they're literally at the base of the energy industry, and that is the base of the mining industry. They're going to merge. So by 2050, Bitcoin mining industry and the energy industry will be synonymous. They'll be the same thing. And am I worried about um, centralization? No, because I think we're on a trend towards the commodification of ASICs. Uh, where we're, we're hitting a, a sort of stasis in the step function improvement of the efficiency of the machines. And uh, once Bitcoin monetizes and the demand for ASICs increases, the supply of ASICs will increase naturally as well. It'll be easier to mine from home. And that's the beauty of energy being the base of the mining industry is that energy is pervasive. Like if you go down to Texas, you have everybody from like it's like your mom and pop, they have a well in their back their backyard that they can tap a mining uh, a mining uh, rig into. Of course, you'll have the Exxon's, the large producers as well, um, but you also have the mom and pops like Marshall Holbrook, who's been on TFTC before. He's been mining off these stranded gas wells in Kentucky that are just producing like uh, 50 MCFD, which is like a very small amount of gas compared to uh, what they're pulling out in some wells in the Bakken and then the Permian. Uh, so again, since energy is pervasive, it's global. I mean, you, there's individuals in Latin America, Africa, Bitcoin 2021. I talked to like five people from Nigeria looking seriously to like transition their flare gas into a Bitcoin mining operation. I've talked to people from Saudi Arabia. It's going to get, it's going to get more global than it already is. And the combination of energy being pervasive and the commodification of ASICs as they sort of reach their plateau of efficiency is going to drive prices down for them and make it easier for more individuals and around the world to get into the mining game. So will that mean more state-controlled mining operations because there are obviously a number of countries, the state controls the energy sector? Potentially, yes. Yeah. I mean, Venezuela is already doing it, right? They've confiscated mining hardware and they're, they're mining on behalf of the state there. So there, there already are states mining, yeah. Mm. It's just you got to hope that there's enough. And I think Bitcoin's incentives are perfect that, yes, you'll have states doing it, but you also have your mom and pop natural gas producer doing it as well. And, there's and, a, and yeah. what's great is we already know that if a country had at least 50% of the hash rate and the government forced them to shut it down, the Bitcoin still wins. Yeah. We've already experienced that. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, block checked. That's another underscored, <laughs> underscored theme of this year. Like uh, the block size war, twenty seventeen was a huge stress test, and this this hash rate migration was another one. And Bitcoin passed with flying colors. Six weeks, it hashed it all out. <laughs> Pun. Do you want to? Thanks for coming out, guys. Uh, so one of the beautiful things about the Bitcoin rabbit hole is it just goes deeper and deeper as you go. Um, I'd love to hear what gave you guys your first foothold into really understanding why Bitcoin was important and why it works? I was interning at a managed futures fund when I was 20 and I was sitting in on meetings where people were talking about currency markets trading off of the color of Janet Yellen's uh, blazer that day. And I was like, this 
doesn't seem right. And I was probably like a stone college student <laughs> sitting on my couch later that night being like, this Bitcoin thing may make sense. Um, and then obviously you get in for the gains and then you realize when you, you get in for the gains of the asset and then you realize the power of the network, the distributed network. And it's like, holy shit. Like, I got in it for the gains. I got in it because I thought the way uh, fiat currencies were being handled and the way traders were trading them specifically off of the color of a Fed official's jacket uh, didn't really seem like a good way to be trading currency markets. Uh, and then now, right now, I don't care about the money. Like it, I, I would advocate Bitcoin if I had zero Bitcoin because I think it's imperative for the future of freedom in the digital age. Like as somebody, I have a 19-month-old son. I do not want him to grow up in a world where Bitcoin doesn't exist. It's literally about preserving freedom now. Yeah. Amen to that last point. Um, why do I think it works? It really kind of goes to, I'm answering your question in reverse. Um, why do I think it works? Really kind of goes to a lot of the points that I was talking about earlier with El Salvador. And now that we have instant settlement from anywhere, um, I mean, it, it just works. It's very clear to me now, uh, just probably in the last six months to a year, that you have so much channel capacity. Um, the incentives are all there. Uh, nobody can shut it down. Finality of payment. Like all of those things are just so elegantly there. Uh, so that, that is pretty much, uh, I, I think it's a closed book at this point, to be quite honest with you. You still have idiots out there, Elon Musk and uh, Mark Cuban, that are like literally like these people have a massive platform that are talking about Doge, like Clown Coin, literally like Clown Coin, and I, it's just amazing to me that that you have people that could impact the world in such a meaningful way, um, not seeing it or just lying, one of the two. Um, the first question, so I, you know. Was affected by the 2008-2009 crisis. Um, it was a captain in Afghanistan during that period of time, and had money in the markets. And just like remember what that felt like watching that happen. Started studying um, Warren Buffett and all that kind of stuff, and really kind of tried to understand how financial markets work in a very, at a very deep level. And so, come like 2014-2015, it would, to me it was just like very obvious. Uh, that this system is broke, it's irreparable, and it's mostly because of the debt markets and, and the bond market that that's the case. The equity markets just kind of go along for the ride, especially when you talk about like market cap size. So when I was looking at that, I was saying, what is the solution? How does this insanity end? Are they going to try to take rates negative? Like if everybody's doing it and every single currency is getting debased into like negative interest rates because they're being manipulated, because it's not a free and open market, like how does that end? It's not like everybody's just going to agree to go back on a gold standard. They're not incentivized to do that, especially the ones that have a large network effect with their currencies. So um, when I saw Bitcoin, I saw that it had a peg, it had a fixed number of units and that it couldn't be, or it was being designed at the time so that no one could shut it down, I said, holy moly, <laughs> this thing right here could literally like change everything. And then I just, you know, just kept digging 
deeper and deeper. I was very concerned about the instant settlement piece and whether that would actually get resolved at a future date. And we've learned that it has. So, I always think there's, a, there's never usually just one moment. There's lots of moments. Uh, there's little moments and big moments that kind of reinforce your belief and orange pill you further. And um, So I'll just explain uh, the, the El Salvador moment that clicked for me. So the first time I went was 20 months ago and Michael Peterson invited me in showed me his project and he was paying these kids in Bitcoin and they could go up to the store, which was also a pupuseria, and pay in Bitcoin. And I went up and I paid and I bought some pupuses and I was like, oh, yeah, this is cute. And then just kind of left, thought it was cool what he was doing, but just didn't think of it more than just like a little project. And, you know, fast forward two years and I go back to El Zonte and every single place accepts Bitcoin. Then fast forward when the Bitcoin law passes, um, I didn't have to have cash on me. I didn't have any, do- didn't have any dollars on me. And I can show you all the transactions in my wallet. I just played with Bitcoin over and over again. And what I realized, it, it wasn't a novelty anymore. I, I think I put this in a tweet. I said it actually became a convenience. And so what happened was then when I came to the US, there were certain times I was like, oh, shit, this, this moment here would be much easier if they had the Lightning Network. I'll give I, a really great example. As my hotel, uh, one of my hotels I was staying at recently, uh, vending machine, I wanted a bottle of water. Um, and uh, it was cash only. They would take notes. So I went down to the ATM, and the ATM distributes the notes in 20s, but the maximum note the machine would take is $5. So I've got money, and there's a product, and I can't buy it. And you just think, if there's just a lightning wallet scanned on, you'd get your bottle of water. And there's just so many times like that. Now I've had the lens in El Salvador that I, there's so many times I'm like, if I just had lightning now, it would be a lot easier. So I, I think that's just an interesting story. And, and I got into Bitcoin because I was buying drugs online. <laughs> Sorry, it's truth. My friend, uh, my friend called me up one day and he said, uh, hey, Pete, have you heard about this website, The Silk Road? I was like, no. He's like, yeah, it's like Amazon for drugs. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you can buy any drugs you want. I was like, what? So anyway, he came over and showed me Bitcoin and my first Bitcoin cost $80. Um, and, and I didn't hold any. I just, actually, Tim, um, what's his name? He bought all the Silk Road Bitcoin. Tim? Uh, Draper. Tim Draper's got, he's got three and a half of my Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker. I've actually asked for them back and he won't give it to me. What do you get, 30000 or $300 or something like that? Oh, man. Yeah. An obscene amount. Uh, Carlino. Come over. So Carlino is a really interesting guy. When I was in El Salvador, he comes over one day in his car and drove me to Guatemala and, we went and got drunk for about eight days. Hey. Hey. So um, I appreciate the attention to the El Salvador story. Um, personally, I think that the bigger story of the past six months is actually Afghanistan. Um, if the fiat US dollar system is backed by the United States military, and yet they just abandoned Afghanistan after 20 years of wasting all the money that could have been used to pay for... Uh, you know, old folks retiring in the United States and all the debt. Um, Does that send a message that actually the the U.S. military is no longer backing the U.S. dollar? Then I'll let you uh, answer this one since you (laughs) served. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you're looking at a legacy system that served its purpose, that worked, for the time being, and I would describe it as working because you had, you didn't have social unrest. You had an environment, all of us grew up in an environment that was safe, 
Um, that doesn't mean that, it, that that was the same environment that everybody around the world grew up in, right? But the system that, that we inherited, that we grew up in, is now transitioning, right? If you want to say that that was the moment that the transition happened, feel free to do so. Um, other people might say that, that, that that moment might be somewhere off into the future with maybe some other event. Um, I, I, I'm real hesitant to ever like, say something is binary one way or the other, or that this event was the thing that made everything different. I just think it's a, a mark in time uh, for a system that has run its course. It's transitioning to something that is going to be um, something that's going to be beneficial for humanity as a whole. Um, because at the end of the day, your labor and your work, the energy that you personally expend to perform labor is now fr frozen and preserved in a way that you can then respend that for the value that was captured by you at whatever point previously in, in, in your life. It's not being clawed away from you. And it's something that has never existed before in humanity um, because the technology wasn't there to supply it. And so um, I don't, it's not that I'm trying to pivot from your question, but I, I just look at what's happening right now as being such an exciting time in history and such a uh, positive situation for people that are open to the idea to harness it and to uh, embrace what's being presented right at their footstep. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I answered your question real well, but... Um, it is interesting to watch the complete collapse of the, oh. the banking system in Afghanistan oh. at this moment in time, and there is an argument there for... Actually, there's multiple currencies we're seeing collapse in real time. Lebanon's... Uh, we're seeing uh, all over Turkey, the world, all over the world, and you know everyone now has a. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to avoid the the politics and you know, the war argument, but I think it's a ve very interesting time, especially. I mean, I was talking to Steve, Steve, where? Steve, Steve. Yesterday, uh, we were talking about whilst America spent two decades fighting wars in the Middle East, uh, China has uh, been building infrastructure projects around the world, uh, indebting countries with the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, you know, whatever you think of that, but it's their way of influence, their form of imperialism has been a lot softer and probably much more effective than the US. Uh, Don't even know where I'll go with this. Well, me personally, like as an America, I like I was ten when nine eleven happened, and it was a very impressionable time in my life. And you had patriots like Preston go over and fight on our behalf, like thinking they're fighting to preserve the freedom. And like, just for me personally, I, I know this must be very personal for you, Preston, but like seeing the way the Afghanistan situation was handled at the end was embarrassing. And I think while I was embarrassed, other people around the world probably looked at that or like, whoa, maybe, like you said, they're, they're not as strong as, or organized. I want to say as strong, not as organized or as put together as possible. It sends a strong signal to the market. But like Preston said, it's not one binary thing. It's just another snowflake of compounding incompetence at, and again, it, it comes back to, you can't have top-down control of these complex systems. Like, like it, it just it, it highlights that 
for me specifically, and it, it highlights the need to get away from this top-down control of, of things that should be grassroots and emergent. I, I like to play the role of like, what if I was in the, the seat of person whoever? So I'm, I'm guilty of this. I bash on central bankers all the time. Just look at my Twitter feed at any point in time and you'll see it. Um, but I have to ask myself, what if I was Janet Yellen? What if I was, you name it, central banker? What policy or what actions would I be personally taking right now? And I hate to tell you, I'd probably be taking the exact same actions they're taking. Because their actions, are, they have to take them. They have to supply more liquidity into a system that is literally sucking every dollar they print or every euro they print that they're, they're putting into the system. It's going straight into the market capitalization of the equity or the fixed income bond prices that are out there. And it's going to happen whether they do it via quantitative easing into the bond market or if they send you a UBI check and you immediately go to Walmart and you stuff that buying power into that conglomerate and it boosts their, their net income and then the entire marketplace goes and, and bids the price of the equity even higher. The PE is now 40 or 45 or 50, right? So they have to keep supplying that liquidity into the system. And they're going to keep doing that until some alternate system can decentralize that process and take it away. Well, but it's needed. It's a very good point, too. They know the gravity of the situation. Hank Paulson went in to uh, the government in 2008 and said, we do not bail these, <laughs> these banks out. There, there's not going to be money in the ATMs by Wednesday. Like, they know how bad of a situation the monetary policy over the last five decades has put these central bankers in. And like you said... I think they've been planning, they've known how bad it is, and they've been planning to like push us to a central bank currency, like something more Chinese social credit score. But I think they thought that was the only alternative. Uh, that would obviously be terrible. Like just the banality of evil, like, oh, we need to fix this, we need to fix this. Let's cattle herd these people into this dystopian future. Luckily, we have Bitcoin. And I think while we do, I shit on the central bankers, the politicians so easy to do. too. But I think we should turn the other cheek and understand, like Preston said, where they're, they literally, like Jerome Powell, you can see it on his face. He does not like being the Fed chairman having to say that inflation is transitory. He lit, like that's the way the markets work now in this fiat system. It's all posturing. Again, people are trading currency markets off Janet Yellen's, the color of her jacket. Like it's, it's not based in any reality. Everybody at that level knows it. They cannot admit it because once you do, like we said earlier, like, there would be pandemonium. Imagine you're in an aircraft. The oil in the, in the engine, maybe you had a bullet hole or there's a hole in it or whatever, and it's leaking oil out of it. And the, the airfield that you're trying to fly to is way far away, right? But you have this reserve of oil and a pump that can continue to supply it into the leaky engine. Do you do that or you just let the engine seize up and wish yourself luck, right? The central bankers are deciding to turn on the pump of the liquidity into the engine so that it can continue to fly in hopes of finding an airfield that many of them I don't think really understand exists, which it, there is one. Um, but as long as they keep supplying that liquidity, it's gonna, the, the aircraft is going to naturally land itself 
just but they have to keep the liquidity flowing. So that's the situation that they're in today. Um, and I think it just kind of goes to like back maybe to your original question, like everybody's got incentives. Everybody's got incentives to do what they think is right based on the opportunity cost of their other choices. And unfortunately for a person who's like a central banker today, like all their choices are bad choices. They don't have a good choice. They have ones that are just slightly better. Well, they do. <laughs> they can buy Bitcoin. <laughs> they probably are personally. Yeah. Personally, yeah. yeah. No, that's but, but it goes back. They can't make that announcement, Peter. No. They cannot make that announcement publicly because they would, they would rip the Band-Aid off so quickly that the transition wouldn't, wouldn't be this gradual uh, transition. Yeah, that's... They, the central bankers don't want to be the last one holding. There's also, like, there is hubris in it where, like, they're academics. They work their whole careers. They don't want to be the fucking Fed governor, the Fed chairwoman, chairman that was left holding the bag is the reason everything fell out. Um, but that is why I think a very strong silver lining of the last two years that everything's going on is this reassertion of states' rights. And I do think that the states can get it together. States can get it on their balance sheets. They can implement mining infrastructure, roll some of those excess mining profits into permanent funds that allow them to keep taxes low and say, go to the federal government and the Fed, like, hey, actually, we don't need your money. We're fine. Like, I want to see that. I'm trying to meme Bitcoin mining permanent funds into existence because I actually do think they're important in creating a smooth transition. You heard it here. Memes are important. Yeah, let's try this. Okay. So one thing that you guys kind of didn't really hit on uh, ahead of time is, you know, the three of you, while also being some of the smartest people in the space, also have some of the biggest platforms in the space. You know, each of you has, a, a, you know, one of the biggest podcasts here and you've had a lot of guests. So a fun question would be, who's the smartest person you've talked to in Bitcoin and why? And give all the caveats you needed to give ahead of time, you know, for big and favorite. <laughs> Damn, that's hard. Mine are very financial. Like I have a financial bias. So, um, you know, Lynn Alden, I think is brilliant. And, uh, you know, I personally get along with Jeff Booth really well. Jeff really helped me kind of see just how technology growth was this exponential thing, um, um, very similar to the way that Moore's Law is. And, and I think that really helped me construct a, just kind of a little bit of a different sight picture than I had before reading his book and really kind of getting to know him a lot better. But here's the caveat. <laughs> there are so many smart people in this room. I'll tell you, just standing over here talking to everyone here, we are not the smartest people in this space. I promise you that. We have a platform, right? We have a platform that has a network effect based on search algorithms. Um, and I'm just trying to be as, as forthright as possible, right? This space, you go to any conference and you just talk to whoever. Um, wow. Yeah, Brennan, that's a Unreal. hard question, yeah. dude. Like, so many. Uh, Disclaimer, sponsor of the pod. I really like, I think Drew Bunsall is really smart and underrated in the space. And he, he likes to keep things close to the chest. I think what they're building at Unchains, an incredible product. Disclaimer, sponsor of the pod. Um, uh, I mean, Matt Corrala, John Newberry, James O'Byrne, all the core devs, Andrew Chow, like the young talent in Bitcoin is insane. Like Andrew Chow, Ben Kaufman, Ben Carmen. Um, How about like the people that have like, literally written the lines of code, the Adam yeah. backs, the, those type of people. Like, 
they're very technical. They're, they're engineers. They might not come on and give an interview that you're just like, yes, right? Because they're, they're really kind of getting down into the nuances of like how this entire thing works. And uh, I, would, I would like to also caveat just because a person might not come on and like have the, this, this charisma about themselves, um, they're probably like Peter Woolley's another example of oh somebody God. like, I don't understand half the stuff that he posts. But just think about his contributions to the space. It's mind-blowing. Incalculable. Yes. So. Uh, I'm going to throw out one I think you'll appreciate, just because it's, it's very easy to just, uh, they've already listed all some of the smartest people, but somebody I've interviewed twice recently who fascinates me, and I just think more people should listen to him and be aware of him is, you'll, you'll, I know you like him, is Harry Suddock. Oh, I know yeah. you do as well. Love so him. It's, yes. um, what's quite interesting, these guys all know it. It's like there's certain interviews you do, you know you're going to get you know, big download numbers and there's certain people that you get on that nobody knows. And like the Harry shows, the two I've done with him, you know, they're more towards the lower end because people just don't know who he is. But I think if they listen to it, they would listen to every show he does. He's, uh, he's really smart. He's, he's got the whole mining thing covered like Marty. Uh, so if you've never listened to Harry Suddock, I mean, have you, you had him? Yeah, I've had him on. You've so had him. Preston's some had of him. us do shows where I bring on Marty and Harry. There, there's, there's podcasters that have done that episode. <laughs> I've, I've known Harry for almost five years now. I was working at Barstool and he was working at like a hedge fund and we met at the Ace Hotel in Flatow. I'll never forget the first time I met him and we were just two Bitcoiners who weren't really in the Bitcoin space yet, like talking about how we can get in it. And Harry started from the data side. I believe he was providing like uh, chain on-chain data to like crypto hedge funds and he didn't really want to go that route. And so just me personally and being a friend of Harry is seeing how far he's come from us meeting in the Ace Hotel in the winter of 2017 to like where he is today and like how much he's just completely consumed the mining industry and, and owned it. Um, he could have a second career doing uh, movie trailers as well. <laughs> doing the he's voice. Got voice. The... He's got a voice. Yeah, that's true. Voice. That yeah. is true. Thank you again for coming. Um, I'm Zachariah. I'm actually a banker Ooh. who has Bitcoin. I'm at First Horizon <laughs> in Green Hills on Abbott Martin Road. So, any of y'all need a banker? <laughs> come pay me a visit. But uh, kind of bouncing off off of something y'all were saying earlier. Um, what would you say to the traditional financial institutions such as the banks, such as central banking and the credit unions to say, hey, we need to get on this Bitcoin thing because this is like a road to hell right now. Like, what would you guys say if you were at the negotiating table for that? <sighs> Number one, there's going to be demand for services is Bitcoin. Like, so that's it. Like, one thing we should be leaning into is, is, yes, Bitcoin is a little rough around the edges right now, but like, Bitcoin's UX is only going to improve going forward, and the traditional banking systems UX is only going to de like decrease over time, just because the regulations and the increased regulations and the limits on who can send how much money to who and who's even able to hold money in a bank account. So the UX is only going to improve. It's open source software; it can only improve from here. Uh, you need better collateral. You need faster settlement times. You need better money. Like there's. You can run down the list, but I, I really do think we like pitching this to new coiners, pre-coiners, whatever we want to call them, is hey, just think about it. Like, has your banking experience gotten better over time? Do you expect it to get better over time? And yes, Bitcoin's rough around the edges, but would you concede that it can get better over time with more software, more UX? Are you talking in terms of like adding it onto the balance sheet or as as an investment vehicle? Is that how? Is that what you're? 
Yeah. I mean, for me, the thing that's super obvious is, and I know this is past performance, which isn't an indication of what the future holds, but um, if you had a stock that had a compound annual growth rate of 100% annually for a decade straight, had the best sharp ratio of any security on the entire stock market, and you didn't um, actively try to explain why it wasn't part of your portfolio, I mean, I, I would call that in a military term, a dereliction of duty for a person who has a responsibility to put their customer's interest before anything that they're trying to sell, a product that they're trying to sell. Um, so, I mean, those are the simple things. Like everybody who's an investment person wants to, they, they want to say, okay, well, what was your, what was your sharp ratio uh, over the last year for your performance so that I can look at what your return was comparative to the volatility that you assumed for that, for that investment? And when you do that with Bitcoin, it's a little hard to, to ignore it. Now, let's talk about the future, which we already did, right? Um, and so you say, okay, so this thing is, you know, making a run at a trillion and it has upside in excess of 30 trillion. And I would tell you, it's more than that. Um, and we could go into all the reasons why. So, okay, so the upside's there. It's more technically sound. It, uh, the fundamentals, you got countries literally adopting it as legal tender. People can't stop the payments. Nobody can shut it down. Like, um, at, one, at some point, that industry is going to have to look themselves in the mirror and ask themselves, how have I continued to be the patsy at the table for an entire decade? Because from my point of view, they have been. <laughs> it's going to be easier to build stuff on Bitcoin compared to the traditional banking system as well. Yeah. Uh, one of the important things I've found is, uh, is just thinking about the idea of final settlement. And I much rather have my money in a multi-sig wallet than, than in a bank. Just I have free access to it. I can spend my Bitcoin as I choose. I don't get my accounts closed down. I don't get mass surveillance uh, across my Bitcoin account. I can travel to anywhere in the world and get liquidity. When you, I, I think it's obvious that this is a big problem for the banks, and that's why, especially someone like the UK, it's very difficult to to buy Bitcoin. The banks are, you know, essentially scared of it. But the, um, I think the I think the banking system is ripe for um, disruption, and I think it will be a combination of. Bitcoin wallets and neo banks, and I think eventually, if the banks themselves do decide they want to accept Bitcoin, they're probably going, there's going to be some consolidation with the Bitcoin companies. I, I got one more comment on the investing side. Um, so, one of the replies you'll hear from the banking sector is like, "Well, this thing's got sixty percent, sixty-five percent annual volatility. I can't put that in a sixty-year-old, you know, portfolio. That's total crap." Right? And here's why it's total crap. You could take Bitcoin and put it as a 1% position on that portfolio, take 99%, stuff it in the cash, and compare that to somebody who's in a 100% S&P 500 fund, or like take their whole portfolio, put it in the S&P 500, you name it, whatever. Find something that you, portfolio makes that you really like, right? 
that 1% Bitcoin position is matching the return of the S&P 500, but it's doing it with less volatility. So your sharp ratio comparing the 1% allocation to whatever portfolio mix you want to bring to the table, right? Because most 98% of fund managers can't outperform the S&P 500. So come, come to the table with the best portfolio mix you've got, and I'm probably going to be in a better shape than them having 100% of the S&P 500. Um, and you're going to outperform it, and you're going to have less volatility. So I can't understand it. Ooh. I'm, I'm At last. dereliction of duty. Thank you. <laughs> So rumor has it that uh, the SEC is, may approve uh, a, a Bitcoin futures ETF next month. What do you, if approved, what do you think will, will happen with adoption for that? And do you think they're choosing the futures over spot because they think they may be able to control it, like some may say they've done with gold? Did you see my eye roll when you said it? Uh, I've said this many times, BTC is the ETF. They will approve an ETF. Yeah, I don't know. Hey, man. Can you... Yeah, maybe they'll try to, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you can... The whole, the whole futures market, like, being used as the vehicle, so it's cash settled, is the biggest eye roll, like, zero credibility um, joke. Think about it. Like the whole, what you're getting at is like, hey, they can, can control the gold market because it doesn't immediately settle, right? You got to wait for the gold to be pulled out of the vault. You got to line up your transportation and logistics and you got to get it to the next vault and wherever it's going. Like, it's just, it's gold. It's old. Um, Bitcoin's not like that. It immediately settles, right? 10 minutes if you're doing it on chain, whatever, right? Like, it doesn't cost any type of storage cost to put this thing in a in a warehouse somewhere, right? So sure, they can they can stand up an ETF, they can use the futures market, they can make it cash settled, but it's not going to stop this thing, and it's not going to stop the underlying price because you got every kid with 30, 30 years and younger, they're pulling out their their smartphone, they're watching their friend who has some type of app open that they're buying Bitcoin with, oh, I got strike here. I just immediately uh, converted dollars into Bitcoin. I just sent it, blasted it off to my own self-custody wallet, right? With zero transaction fees. Who the hell thinks they can step in front of that with some cash settled ET? The thing's a freaking joke, right? It's a joke. It's laughable this is for, for anybody that actually understands how settlement works and this game of trying to manipulate a market with a cash settled futures this is investment advice just don't buy the etf just buy bitcoin yeah screw that <laughs> what are the fees going to be on that seriously maybe debacle they can, right like, like this is total yeah. joke maybe they can manipulate the price temporarily but like that would only be temporary in my like bitcoin's and i don't want to say it's inevitable i don't want to be that hubristic but like it's too big at this point. Like it's one one cash settled ETF in the US, Bitcoin's global. Like you're gonna have people in El Salvador and Africa, Middle East, all across the world using it. Like they're the price appreciation on Bitcoin is not coming from an ETF. The price appreciation that's gonna make Bitcoin scream over a million dollars a coin is gonna be when the, the fixed income market comes to the realization 
that the 5% inflation is not going away, right? As they, as they manipulate the bond market via QE to rates even lower than 1%. Eventually, there's going to be a realization when people are managing a, a $3 billion bond tranche and they're saying, you know what? I need to have some of this buying power allocated into that. And when that contagion starts to set in, you're going to watch Bitcoin just go like this and it's not going to come back. Do, do we have anyone here who doesn't own Bitcoin yet? You can admit it. You won't get in trouble. What's the Sidewalk. The boomer. Hey, hey, hey. Let's bring him in. He's a pre-coiner. Yeah. <laughs> so every, everybody here, or it's okay to admit it. I actually lost all my Bitcoin on the drive down here. Today. <laughs> <laughs> they flew out the window. I'm losing mine uh, on Saturday, I think. Uh, back to the ETF. Somebody's been around the block, like, the ETF has been coming next month many times in the past, so don't hold your breath for that either. So, Preston, you'd mentioned, um, you'd thrown out a number of $30 trillion, right, for a market cap, just as, just as I guess. Yeah. So, kind of wanted to get some more clarity on that. Are you seeing that in addition to maybe a store of value, you know, component, in addition to global payment layer, or in addition to kind of a play on the fixed income, fixed debt market. Can we show you some appreciation for an American turning up in an Aston Villa football shirt, by the way, <laughs> which, is, which is the oddest team for someone in America to be sport. I, I don't know what the equi- equivalent is for... I don't Miami know. Dolphins? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a very straight... I mean, it's the middle of nowhere. And they've always been pretty shit. <laughs> the, buff, the Buffalo Bills. Okay, it's the Bills. I would answer your question. You gave me choice A, B, C, and D. I would say it was choice E, all of the above of everything you mentioned. Um, I actually find the uh, the whole gold narrative to actually be hilarious. That this is gonna this is replacing gold, and like that's the end state. That's like tip of the iceberg, as far as I'm concerned. It's. Like, just think about what Lightning is doing. Like, Lightning is the payments layer of the internet. Like, Bitcoin unlocks utility that has never been possible before in the digital realm. Like, you, we, can, we don't even know the total addressable market of that stuff. Like, and Blaji Srinvansen, uh, I don't know if many of you remember, but like, he had 21 Co. and he had his Bitcoin, his 21 Bitcoin mining computer, which was the worst fucking miner in the world. It produced very, small amount of hashes but the idea around that 21 computer was something he deemed the machine payable web and is an incredible idea it was just too early for its time now that is possible with the lightning network so you think about like what we can do now you can go to my website and you can buy shout outs you can uh, use the dime bag to buy a final thought uh, people are starting to integrate the lightning network into BitTorrent. they're going to integrate it into like streaming services and that's just humans interacting with the internet. Like, we, like if AI and machines talking to machines become a thing, that's a whole nother market that nobody's even thought about yet. And we couldn't even fathom that total, like how much, how many trillions, hundreds of, I think it's gonna be hundreds of yeah, trillions. I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, so I'm, I'm really having fun with my node these days and opening all these <laughs> channels. Maybe you've seen it on Twitter. Uh, but I'm thinking about this and I'm, I'm taking Bitcoin um, writing a contract on layer one that's, that's an indefinite 
contract that either person can basically close out. But I have an incentive to keep that contract open and just rebalance the, the funds. So those funds are locked into this layer too, right? So then I'm thinking, well, how much, how many transactions happen on Visa, MasterCard, and all those? Well, it's like $370 billion on an annualized basis that are flowing through these pipes. So that's like a billion a day, right, for the, for the pipe size. That's just like, that's just Visa and MasterCard. That's not like a pipe that's laid to Amazon or like, all these other connections that are going to naturally occur on this network. So what does that look like? How many of those coins are going to be locked up for the transactions that are taking place? And like, those aren't going to come back onto the market for resale and for trading purposes. Um, I, it's just, it's mind boggling, boggling to me what that turns into, because you're talking about something the world has never, ever seen before. Fucking sending transactions to space. It's like. So, do you remember the lightning torch? Yeah. So, I sent mine from one plane to a guy on another plane. We went plane to plane <laughs> using the plane Wi Fi. It was fucking brilliant. 40,000 feet. But you can do that. 40,000 40, feet in the year, you're sending money from one person part of the world flying 500 miles an hour in a chair to somebody else doing exactly the same. And it worked. It was fully encrypted. fully encrypted. From your node to his node. Yeah. Well, and then to his. I think we'll be we'll be able to tell like a, or guess at a a market cap. But when it comes to like the Lightning Network, the the ability to create private channels, like you're not even you're not even going to be able to know how much activity is going on. Like right now, there's probably an insane amount of transaction volume going on the Lightning Network that nobody will ever know about because it's private channel, other than the two entities in the channel, like. We, it's alien technology that we discovered 12 years ago. We have no idea the potential <laughs> that it's going to unlock. It's, this is like, it's my we are very lucky to be alive right now. Stack as many sets as you can. God damn it. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for coming out. Um, my question was kind of centered around uh, sort of a states race for Bitcoin mining and then what that would possibly play out and look like and then the states that maybe aren't as energy independent, countries even, how would you see the shift to say if Texas becomes a center hub of mining Bitcoin and you have these you know, energy-stranded states, countries, how can they kind of get scanning in the game and exposure directly uh, and how you guys kind of see that playing out? It's for you, Marty. I, I, they'll have to provide other services, right, that people are willing to to pay Bitcoin for. That's the other thing too. I don't, I don't think people realize how pervasive energy is. Like solar. I shit on solar and wind a lot, but it exists. And like you can you can harness those solar. My beef with solar and wind is that they're unreliable and I don't think they should be base base load energy for large swaths of people for large grids. However, they could be good for like personal mining operations. Uh, in terms of energy but <coughs> There are very oil rich and uh, actually no, like these states will just buy nuclear reactors. They're all gonna they're all gonna combat. Like, yeah, Bitcoin mining incentivizes the proliferation of nuclear energy. It's gonna happen. Like, so they'll just buy nuclear reactors and mine with that. Like they're all gonna get in the game. I think your the intention of your question was was oriented more towards how are the coins gonna be evenly distributed throughout not just states but like 
kind of more on a global scale between nation states. And I would tell you that I think a lot of the Bitcoin is going to get redistributed um, in a major way once you actually get uh, fair, free and open markets and the cost of capital reprices equity across the globe. So like today, I'm not willing to give up any of my Bitcoin for equity because of how mispriced it is. Um, as as you actually get real interest rates that get constructed through a free and open market of Bitcoin lending, what you're going to find is your interest rates are going to go up. They're going to be way higher than where they're at right now. And so all the, all the equity is priced today based on interest rates, 10-year treasury at 1.3% or whatever it is. Um, and so that's why your PEs are 30 or 40. But if interest rates were at 10%, I'm just going to use this as a round number. Let's say that that's the free and open interest rate that kind of comes out of a Bitcoin standard. When that 10% comes up, the price of all that equity now gets compressed. The prices of that equity get compressed down to some form of return that gives you something better than a 10% return. And so that means that the, the capitalization rates of that equity are going to, if, if we're talking about a 30% or I'm sorry, a, a PE of 30 to a PE of 10 to come to parity with an interest rate of 10%, you have now lost 66% of the buying power in the market capitalization of equity, right? Now, all of a sudden, I start to become a buyer of equity for a person who holds a significant portion of the coins. They're now looking at that and saying, well, if I buy this for this price, based on the free cash flows of a company that has a, a competitive advantage, has a, has a moat around the business as far as their competition in the space, and they're kicking off free cash flows, I'm now going to give up my Bitcoin to that equity holder, and I'm now going to buy it. But the problem today is like all that equity is compressed into the hands of 1%, 2% of the population when you're looking at it. Um, they, they think that those prices are warranted based on the interest rates that they're seeing. But I think what they're missing is this, when this keeps moving in the direction that it's moving, it's going to reprice everything. And then those coins are going to get out into these nation states. They're going to, especially in nation states where uh, those equity prices are penalized the most because you're going to have investors like myself or others that are saying that equity is grossly mispriced. It's way, way below, or it's, or it's the yield is way, way higher than that 10% rate, whatever that rate ends up being. And you're going to have investors that step into that market. And those coins are then going to get redistributed all over the planet. Yeah, and I think we're already seeing like Bitcoin's utility is just driving adoption in developing countries like Africa, like in terms of like actual transaction usage, I believe like Nigeria, yeah, Ghana, Latin America are top of the list. And yes, they may not have all the coins, but they're adopting Bitcoin and actually using it a lot earlier than, than a lot of people in Western countries. Um, so I think there is that, that utility that Bitcoin provides and the, the demand for that utility in emerging economies that it, it's a natural adoption uh, in those places because they literally need it. All right, we're uh, coming to a close. I'm going to do one more question. Uh, but uh, before I do that final question, uh, do people like want to just go somewhere and have a drink afterwards? Because this place is going to close at nine. So if everyone wants to go and have a drink, we should probably just agree a place. Uh, we could either go down to Broadway, that could turn into carnage, but I'm not against it. Sounds like we're going to Broadway. Let's okay. go. I want to go listen to some live music. I okay, so we're going to go to Broadway. Yeah. It's just a bit small, though, and we're taking 
50 people down. Uh, we got two final questions here. Hey, thanks for all you guys do. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, it seems like a pretty young crowd here. Um, I'd just be curious what you guys think on some of the Bitcoin, like IRA type stuff. You know, I think we're all optimistic on what Bitcoin can do long term. But for those of us with kids and like looking down the road, like, do you see any advantage to, to using IRAs or just buying Bitcoin spot price and just holding, even if you can hold your own keys in that IRA, do you see any? differentiation or could you speak on that a little bit peter till's kind of messed this one up for everybody yeah yeah what do you do you like rolled his uh i've got a six billion dollar ira he rolled his like paypal seed uh shares into that didn't he uh and so now they're trying to put a limit and a cap on like how much is yeah Uh, Yeah. i'm bad with like the tax (laughs) the tax like preferable I think it makes total sense to do it, yeah. especially if you're holding your own keys. I think uh, the big mistake that a lot of people are going to make is they're going to be buying an ETF that is based on top of a futures price. There's going to be massive disconnect, especially if you get into this hyper-Bitcoinization kind of scenario. I think you're going to watch those types of vehicles just like they're going to be disgustingly bad at tracking the, the underlying price. Um, and more importantly, if you've got your own Bitcoin and you hold the keys... I think the the real big play on the other side of this is um, it's going to start in the fixed income space. And the only way you're going to be able to lend anything is if you actually have your keys. Um, and, uh, And I'm not encouraging people to be in that space right now. I find that space very interesting right now because you're seeing a major disconnect between what risk-free rates are in traditional finance and the, the rates you're seeing in the in the Bitcoin space. That's why I find it fascinating. But I have a lot of concerns with rehypothecation in that space today. I specifically have a lot of concerns about how the the companies that are providing this have basically two different books. They got retail books and then they have institution books. And those institution books where a lion's share of that lending is occurring is happening in a rehypothecated fractional, like they're under collateralized in that space. And if you don't think that that could spill into the retail side that is over collateralized in an instant kind of way, which I think is very promising, um, you're totally kidding yourself. So that's why I'm hesitant to suggest anybody do that. But I think when that, when that matures at a certain point, that's going to be an extremely exciting space uh, for people to benefit from. And I think, I think the interest is going to be pretty exciting. But I worry, like, Janet Yellen trying to come after unrealized gains. Like, maybe those IRAs could be a target. I'm channel my inner Odell here. Like, just, you're right. Those don't exist in the eyes of the government. Uh, it shows you how desperate they yeah, are right now. That's, so that's, yeah. what I, that's what I worry about is those IRAs becoming targets for wealth confiscation, um, which is something you should consider. We have a different setup in the UK. I don't actually have a pension. Another thing I was talking to Steve about yesterday, uh, I, I explained to him that my essentially my Bitcoin wallet is my pension um, and 200, 200% annual gains. Hopefully by the time I retire, um, that'll just be, it'll become like my bank account and I'll be dipping into yeah. and, and I probably won't be in the UK and I'll be somewhere where hopefully I won't be taxed and not given a shit. Um, hey. All right. Well, listen. Look, we're we're at a we're at a limit. Two minutes to go. Can we have a round of applause for Marty and Preston? 
Thank you for putting this together, Peter. This was awesome. Huh? Thank you for putting this together. Hey, this was awesome. uh, thank you for everyone for coming. The whole thing worked out really... I was really nervous no one was going to turn up. When I announced the Miami one that was free, it sold out in about 30 minutes. And when I announced this for like half an hour, there was no ticket sold. And I was like, fuck, <laughs> this is going to be so embarrassing. So we were like three people will turn up. But no, so I appreciate everyone coming. Uh, it, it, you know, all the money went towards the equipment, the food, drink. Um, we don't make any money on this. Uh, hopefully would in the future, but we don't. But so appreciate you all coming down. Um, probably go down to this central, honky-tonk central. It's a bit rough. There'll be a lot of uh, bachelorettes there if any single lads here. Um, uh, yeah, pollute, pollute. Next year yeah, maybe sooner. Why, why next year? What I want's a quarter. Yeah, why not? Hey, I, hey, I'll come here as much as you guys want. Well, I'm moving here. <laughs> I'm moving here. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the... You, you, own, no, you own nothing. Uh, appreciate everyone coming. Uh, uh, have a great night. Be careful. Don't get too drunk. Uh, love you all. Cheers. All right. What do you think of that? You know what? I really enjoyed mixing it up and doing a live show and meeting some of the people who listen. And you know what? Massive thanks to everyone who came. There was like dudes who drove eight hours to come and watch this live show. It's very cool. Also, a massive thanks to Marty and Preston. bringing the fire as ever. It's great to hang out with them in Nashville. Now, I'm pretty sure there'll be more live events in the future, so please keep an eye out on Twitter. And anyway, I bet you enjoyed that a lot, right? As ever, if you want to reach out to me, you can drop me an email on hello at whatbitcoindid.com or jump into my Telegram group. And if you want to support the show, I ask this every week. If you're a regular listener, if you've got an Apple phone, you've never done this, what the fuck are you doing? Come on, come and support the show. Go and leave me a review. Hopefully, you think the show deserves five stars. Loving my time here in Austin. It's super awesome. But tomorrow, I'm heading to Las Vegas. We've got the big fight between Wilder and Fury, which I'm going to be at with a few friends. So looking forward to that. All right, have a great weekend. I love you all, and I will see you all next week.